Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined down the line by Charlie Beckett, journalism professor at the London School of Economics, where he leads the body's Polis AI research project. An award-winning filmmaker at BBC and ITN, Charlie became programme editor at Channel 4 News, where he covered major stories such as the terrorist attacks on New York and London. Moving to academia, where he's charted the impact of technology on journalism, he became a professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE and its founding director of POLIS, the LSE's International Journalism Institute. His work on the impact of AI on journalism and society has placed Charlie at the cutting edge of today's most fundamental media debates. Charlie, thank you for joining me. Nice to be here, Paul. Well, the Journalism AI project that Polis launched couldn't be more timely given current debates. So that's right. We started it nearly five years ago. Back then, artificial intelligence had a kind of sexy vibe, a sort of science fiction thing. But generally for journalism, it was pretty humdrum. People were starting to use it to do things like, you know, automating sports results or perhaps, you know, financial stories. Anything that was quite simple and that you could do at scale you could use these machine learning software tools. But of course, that's all exploded in the last uh, eight months or so with the rise of, you know, generative AI, chat GBT and all that stuff, uh, which has just completely changed the landscape. So something I was working on, which was very important, but in some ways a bit invisible, uh, has suddenly become, well, not just talk of the town, but it's just a global, a global phenomenon. But using AI responsibly to counter global media inequalities, I mean, I've not heard of that before, and you've discussed that. I mean, we don't hear a lot of that in this debate, do we not? No, that's right. We're, the, the project I work on, um, like most things at LSE, is very global. Um, we work with people from more than 100 countries doing all sorts of experimentation and so on and training. And uh, one of the big things we came across very soon was this idea of inequalities. So it's not just international. Uh, but that's the most obvious one. So a lot of this technology is in English and a lot of the world doesn't speak English, so that doesn't help. Uh, and a lot of places around the world, uh, news organisations are even less well-resourced than they are here uh, in the UK. But also they're just smaller newsrooms, be they in the UK, America or anywhere. They can often be the cleverest with digital technologies, but obviously by their nature, they don't have a lot of resource. And so we've been looking at ways to bridge that gap. I mean, you often hear of AI as a threat to journalism, but <clears throat> I've read that it could actually free up journalists from the, you know, the formulaic task and actually then, you know, allow them to focus on original reporting. Is this, is this a boon for journalism? Well, I, I would argue that there are sort of two good things it can do for journalism. One is, you know, what new technologies often have done already, which is just make us more efficient, you know, saving time, um, saving effort. Uh, giving you more ways to, to you know to, to to do your journalism in a in a timely way, so that makes you more efficient, and that's been happening for twenty years with digital tech. The other way is to actually boost your journalism. It can do things you can't do right now. It can you know reformat anything you create into lots of different uh, styles or um, even different mediums. You know you can create something in text and it will turn it into vision or audio. Um, so there's lots of creative things that the new wave of AI can do that's very exciting. Realistically, overall, yes, some people are going to get supercharged. Some news organizations are going to be able to do more of that human journalism, if you like. But of course, let's be realistic. It's going to involve hard work. You're going to have to get retrained, perhaps. You're going to have to experiment with new ways of working. And I think in the end, you know, it will create new jobs. We're going to need people who know how to use AI uh, in journalism. So there will be new jobs, but also overall, I think it, all other things being equal, it does mean that uh, newsrooms are going to shrink over time, not tomorrow, not next year. But, you know, this trend of news organisations generally becoming more efficient and smaller is going to continue. I'm just absolutely flabbergasted at the, the speed with which AI is increasing in its scope. I mean, I remember my friend who's a transcriber uh, for the court, a stenographer. She said even as recently as five years ago that most of her work now was checking what an AI had done. Uh, like Slack automatically, you know, transcribed something. You've, you've now got um, a lot of marketing copies written by AI. Is, this, is the scope of what AI is going to be able to do within journalism going to increase with that same exponential speed? 
I think so. I mean, it's not going to be tomorrow because with journalism, you have to make sure that whatever tool you're going to use, not just that it's efficient, but it's also accurate <laughs> and reliable over time. Um, and that it actually does save you effort rather than adding complications to things. But your example of transcription is a really good one. You know, that's a task that can save you hours and hours and hours. In the past, it was quite efficient. It was quite good, but we know that things like Google Translate were very rough and ready and made mistakes. That is changing very, very rapidly. And transcription and translation as well uh, is getting much, much better. So I think that kind of, you know, the, those kind of basic tools that, 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 that can make a big difference, I think they're going to happen very rapidly. We can see it we, you know, week by week, uh, these new large language models are improving improving themselves um, they're making fewer mistakes and people are coming up with applications uh, that make them easier to use in specific you know use cases and that applies to everyone you know in any profession um, they can use these and journalists are we're supposed to be the information business so we really ought to be using the latest information tools I mean, you've been incredibly far-sighted in setting this up. Have you found that your job has actually changed over the last few months, given the huge interest in AI now? Are you having to sort of reassure people that the robots aren't coming for us? Well, you know, my job is not to necessarily to reassure people. I think you have to be very aware of, you know, the risks, both the particular risks, like, you know, it gets things wrong, and the more general one, which is, you know, uh, is there a threat to the news industry generally? If if these machines can do the journalism, ultimately, you know, in the long term, is there a threat to our business? Uh, so I'm not entirely, uh, you know, reassuring. But the great thing about this project that we've got is that it's created a huge network. We've got more than seven thousand people signed up for our newsletter, for example. We work we work with hundreds of uh, journalists every year, and so there's a fantastic. A network of people so we're able to which we're doing right now do research on what exactly is happening with generative AI you know what difference is it making right now in the newsroom and what do people think about the future and so we are you know I've spoken to well my team has spoken to nearly 100 newsrooms in depth and in detail to see what's happening and you know there is this picture emerging of uh, once again a very rapid changing newsrooms in some ways this technology is having an impact quicker than for example going online 20 years ago perhaps quicker even than you know the impact of social media when that came along um you know it's, it's literally you know it arrived at the end of last year and already people are implementing it in their newsrooms I mean, like you said, that the pace of change is is outstripping society's ability to catch up with it. Who's at the cutting edge of all of this? It, it sounds like you are actually. Is, is that quite an exciting job, given that you know you're the, the the person with the finger on the pulse of where things are going? Well, we don't build the technology, LSE. You know, we're we're, we're watching what's happening, as it were. I mean, it's the you know it's the pe people in the big tech companies that are building the technology, and that, as you say, is, is changing rapidly. And also gets the people in the newsrooms who are working on what they call whatever product or they're working on, you know, digital. Those teams uh, are having very intense conversations amongst themselves, but also, of course, with the marketing people and the editorial people, because there are so many potential uh, use cases for this, this technology that it's going to have an impact on every bit of, you know, news production. Um, and I suppose we have an advantage in my team that we've been watching this for the last five years and we can see that, you know, sometimes there's a, a hype around it, you know, um, and always there's going to be a problem of adapting it to your particular editorial business model or your particular editorial mission and values and so on. So, you know, each newsroom has to do it differently. So in that sense, I would urge caution, I would say to people, rush to get to know this technology make sure that all of your team have some basic understanding of what it is and try it out just you know privately as it were but think seriously carefully before you rush to use it to replace human journalists or before you rush to make it do um, risky things you know like breaking news or creating content directly you know that's all going to happen 
but uh, you know think strategically think about what the problem is you're trying to solve does this really add to the offer that you're making um to your consumers you know is it really helping your journalists or is it you know actually complicating processes so yeah you know it's a whirlwind of change but it's time for you know cool heads as well but but are you the chief cool head because these tech companies are competing against each other with an ever increasingly escalating speed who's actually checking that you know this isn't going too quickly we we've had the recent warnings from a lot of ai pioneers saying that things are going too quickly and this could ultimately be a threat to humanity are the tech companies in their speed and determination to outcompete each other actually forgetting the overall position with humanity well i think funny enough paradoxically the tech companies most of them actually have an interest in you know having some kind of oversight some kind of regulation some kind of rules because in a way they want to protect their product. They don't want, you know, this technology to be, you know, illegal or to be out of control. You know, they have an interest, a business interest in uh, there being some responsibility. But you know, the the genie's out of the bottle. They release these things often. I would argue prematurely, but it's out there. And I think the real danger is not some existential threat to humanity. I think humanity is going to end itself. It's going to be through some virus or through climate change or quite traditional things like warfare. I think that this distracts from some real issues uh, around copyright, for example. You know, who has the ownership of the data that they're using to build these models? If you use this technology to create content, who has the right over that content itself? Um, and, you know, other issues like if people are using uh, these technologies, how do newsrooms get their attention for their content? You know, is there, is there a danger that the news industry uh, can be cut off from its public in a way? So I think there's lots of real crunchy policy issues, business issues to talk about before we worry too much about, you know, the end of, end of the human race. But even that's fascinating, as you say, Charlie, because I remember when that, the uh, I forget the name, but that, that monkey took a picture of itself, didn't he? There was the argument on Wikipedia as to who owned the copyright to that. If you have some AI technology that creates copy for journalism, who owns that? Would it be the newspaper that, that has employed that AI bot, like vicarious ownership, or does the, the tech company own that? It's a fascinating space. It is, and it does raise novel uh, issues, you know? I mean, everything from, you know, say you use you know i film you and i create a a pool bot and i use that bot to read out the news what happens when you know you move on to a new job you know do i still have the rights over your image for that bot or not generally speaking i think a lot of it is going to be dealt with in quite practical ways you know most of these technologies or tools have terms and conditions you know, you can set the tones and terms and conditions. The same with, uh, you know, the news organization. You know, you, you have a deal with your subscribers, for example, or you have a deal with your journalists. You have contracts. You have ways of doing things uh, that, you know, we, we already do all this stuff in the same way that you can regulate. You know, we've seen quite recently that if you want to, you can regulate what tech companies do. You know, they're not some sort of magic um, kingdom that is that, that can't be controlled so i think there will be a lot of practical things and, and of course a lot of lawyers are going to make money in the next few years trying to work this out uh, and there's going to be a series of kind of negotiations around it but it definitely does as you suggested it raises really novel uh, threats partly for journalism but when i think about other industries like filmmaking or music um, or anything you know uh, architects certainly medicine there's all sorts of really tough and important ethical uh, decisions uh, and that's all the more reason why we need to get a bit more savvy all of us about artificial intelligence what a fascinating job you must have i'm just thinking through the repercussions myself i remember a friend of mine about eight or nine years ago sent me the very first deep fake i ever saw where it was like a racist thing that was shared uh, on a whatsapp i immediately unsubscribed it was something about where obama admitted he wasn't born in in the us and it was obviously fake but it, what amazed me is how realistic it looked even back then like, yeah. is that going to be part of how sophisticated audiences are going to have to become now? Because how will we know? They're so realistic now. How would we know if anything's real? Yeah, and I think there's a real, obviously, there's a real problem that, you know, if you can use technology to create amazing 
wonderful content very quickly and imaginatively. Well, there's going to be some, you know, bad people out there who are going to use it for bad reasons, like I don't know, creating clickbait, or indeed, as you say, you know, creating either propaganda or just fakes, you know, fakes that are exploitative, or even, you know, whip up anger and and so on. What I would say is that that's already happening. You know, there's a lot of that stuff out there, and a lot of it is generated by politicians, by journalists by conspiracy theorists, you know, but also lots of other people with blue ticks on Twitter, for example, who spread disinformation, misinformation, and straightforward lies already. So, you know, AI is not going to, you know, suddenly make a good world bad. Um, we've already got a lot of troubles out there. And I think it's very important to, to, to know that, okay, you can use the technologies, you could already to artificially automate some of this misinformation but somebody has to decide it's a human being at the end of it who decides they're going to create a software program that's going to spread lies or it's you know a politician or somebody on social media who decides they're going to you know spread um, mistruth and that's the thing you know it's become a deliberate policy now from certain politicians to deliberately you know throwing if you like smoke in our eyes you know and that i think is the bigger problem and that's what, where, you know, good journalism comes in. Um, you can't expect the journalist to get rid of all the fake news, but at least journalists should be working much harder to make sure that what they do is properly verified, that what they, you know, the content they create is actually based on evidence and is based on, you know, proper intelligent analysis. Uh, and it isn't just emotional, reactive stuff. Because, you know, for, for decades, way beyond, you know, before digital, journalists were perfectly capable of producing rubbish uh, and misinformation. Um, now I think it's even more a requirement to do the opposite if you're in this business. Otherwise, this business loses its reason to, to, to exist. So, yeah, I'm very worried about AI uh, spreading bad stuff. I'm also um, optimistic that you can use AI um, at scale to help counter some of the misinformation, a lot of the work we do in our journalism AI project is working with teams doing precisely that, you know, trying to source better information, trying to help the public recognize what's, what's the information they can trust or the sources that they can trust. And you can help, uh, you can help in that process with AI. So AI facts checking in real time, as it were, as you're listening to a politician or watching them on the television, there could be a ticker underneath that driven by an AI saying, no, it's not 25% as he or she claims, it's 10%. Yeah, all that stuff. And just generally, you know, instead of just going on, I don't know, Twitter to look for the news, you can have your own personalized feeds uh, from news organizations that you trust sending you stories about things that you're interested in uh, and that it filters out all the nonsense, you know, something simple like that. You know, that's this kind of product that I think people are already turning to, to be honest, you know, and uh, they're doing it because it's a safe space. One of the things that fascinates me about the nature of truth in journalism, if you, if you take, for example, the one of the things that frustrated me was the, the bus during Brexit and everyone said, oh, that what was written on the side of the bus was a lie. I mean, technically, on a very obscure definition, the numbers on that bus were technically true. But of course, it didn't take into account the rebates and it clearly was designed to mislead. And yet even then, both sides sort of said that was a lie. It wasn't technically a lie, but a fairer chat would be that it was misleading, which is that how do you how do you cope with things like that then? How could AI make a value judgment as to whether it might be technically true, but ignores a, a very profound wider context, for example? Yeah, and that's why uh, I wouldn't ask AI, is this true? Because AI doesn't know what truth is. All these new chat GPT and everything are just language machines. They're not truth machines. It doesn't know anything. All it can do is give you the right set of words. You know, and it's generally speaking very good at that. It's incredibly good at it, much better than the inventors thought it would be. Um, so in the end, I don't want the AI to make that call that says that is true or that is false. All it can do is give you, you know, the best indication. It can alert you, for example. It can say, you know, I would put, put a question mark, as it were, against some a source or information. 
because they can tell that you know this source has been questioned many times before for example or that the figures this source has seem questionable that's all i really want the ai to do i want it to be act as a kind of warning you know that will signal to people that they ought to be um, you know paying attention and thinking for themselves but in the end as you say so many of these areas are gray ones I and mean, i know that as somebody who was an editor in a newsroom you know knowing what was accurate in a story it's easy perhaps sometimes if it's numbers although not even then but when you're getting into you know political arguments and so on it's much harder and no we don't want the ai to make those kind of judgments I don't want to reduce you to a kind of binary, you know, is this AI a force for good or evil, as it were? I appreciate the question and the answer is a lot more nuanced. But like overall, are you optimistic with the direction that there's obviously challenges ahead, but this could be something that could work for us as humans? Yeah, I guess, you know, um, generally speaking, I would say an optimist realist in the sense that it's going to happen, all right? (laughs) This technology is out there. It's too powerful, too sophisticated, too interesting to disappear. Now, as usual, we always we always exaggerate the impact of technology, especially in the short term. We sort of say, is this going to change the world by next Thursday? Um, and in practice, the change, the big changes anyway, take a longer term and very often they're unexpected. So it could be that there's some, you know, blowback on this in a few years time. I don't think it'll be killer robots. I think it'll be something else. I mean, there's the, the environmental cost of this technology, for example, that might be seen as intolerable. So I, I'm broadly optimistic though, when I see journalists who are hard pressed anyway, and they're fighting hard against, you know, misinformation, they're fighting without resources or time to do their work as well as they could. And I just look at this and I see in a very practical way that it can save them loads of time, which I hope they'll be able to redeploy uh, in ways that make their journalism better in a kind of human way, if you if you like. And I also see some of the, you know, I think we can use our imaginations with this. That sounds a bit odd for journalism, but I think we can be a bit more creative and think, well, hang on a second, what new ways can we you know, use this technology? What new ways to connect our content or our service you know because i think journalism should think of itself more as a a service industry these days how can we serve people better uh, using these technologies you know one of the biggest problems people face at the moment is too much news (laughs) there's too much news out there and they feel swamped by it you know they want to know the news but as soon as they put their toes in the water then they feel like they're drowning so perhaps this ai can help organize our information better in a way that isn't so frantic and fast and furious, you know. So, yeah, overall, I, I, I'm optimistic. Alan Rusbridger came on the podcast a couple of years ago and he said something that was really st- stuck with me at the time. It was fascinating. He said, part of the problem with journalism is us, uh, the, the audience, because if you take, as he says, um, a genuine existential threat to humanity itself, climate change, no one really reads about it because there's there's no events. There's no there's nothing to quote unquote happen. You know, where the visuals, an iceberg cracking off, uh, you know, we've seen that so much it becomes a cliche. And yet, so no one wants to read articles on climate change and yet if a helicopter explodes that's obviously a terrible tragedy but there's visuals it's something you can show it's a thing that happened but it doesn't really move the debate forward or advance us as a species yeah well i think you know i'm obviously obsessed by journalism i was a journalist for 25 years and i've been working you know at the lse for nearly two decades on journalism but i think one of the things i always say to people is Don't exaggerate the importance of the news media or any media, actually. In the end, people make decisions in their lives, generally speaking, based on their own personal experience. They make it in relation to their family and their friends. They don't do something because, I don't know, uh, Rupert Murdoch tells them to, or Rupert Murdoch has a newspaper that tells you what to do. So we shouldn't exaggerate either the good things that media can do, and we shouldn't also exaggerate the bad things we have to take responsibility and it's in the end is you know it's dealing with something like climate change that's about politicians and businesses and other institutions making the right decisions in real life it's not about trying to hope that just by you know doing a beautiful film you'll be able to get everyone to start driving electric cars and you know 
and not using airplanes and being environmentally conscious. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love the fact that journalism is part of that process. You know, at its best, it, it make brings up you know ideas to our attention and makes us think about well, how could things change in a better way? You know, and if if it can just do that, I think it's done its job. To be honest. One of the things that depressed me about the, the Brexit debate at the time was that how no one changed their mind. Like everyone had decided two years before the, the vote, you know, what they were going to do. And the whole thing just seemed utterly pointless. Everyone was shouting at each other. It became a tribalism thing. It cut across families. And, you know, every time 20 economists wrote a letter to The Guardian, everyone thought, oh, right, that's it. People are going to read it and change their mind. Of course, not only did they not change their mind, the Brexiteers, they saw that as further evidence you know, that the establishment were trying to gang up against them. It was, it just seemed the whole thing just seemed ultimately futile. And then you think, well, but is it the job of journalism to persuade people how to vote and say, look, you need to pay attention to this? It, it fascinated me because it almost rendered some journalism, as you said there, irrelevant because people deliberately chose to, well, frankly, not to listen. In the same way that I'm not that interested in sport and I click that little minus sign on the website of the BBC and The Guardian that says, I don't want sport news. I mean, how many minus signs are people going to take now so that they don't listen to anything? Yeah, and I think that's true. I think it's partly a response to the fact that there is so much media out there that people sometimes just want to turn the dial down. You know, it actually gets hard sometimes to get away from media. You know, it's, it's everywhere. And I think, you know, the, one of the big lessons of Brexit was that, yes, media is influential. You could say that the right-wing newspapers helped strengthen the Eurosceptic cause, you know. Um, I don't know if they change people's minds, but they might certainly have reinforced people's beliefs, people's prejudices, and vice versa, you know, that there was plenty of media out there. There's plenty of people saying, no, that the message on the bus is a lie, you know. So it wasn't as if it was a secret. Uh, and the one lesson we got from the Brexit thing is that where people are genuinely polarised on a big issue, and there can't be a more polarising issue than yes or no, remain or leave. I mean, you only had, well, you could not, you could abstain, I suppose. But it was, there wasn't the kind of, well, I want, I want, to, I want to leave a bit. You know, you couldn't vote that way, which would have been much more, a, a, perhaps a realistic option, you know. Uh, and therefore, you know, nothing media can do about that. If the issue issue is deliberately polarising, if David Cameron is stupid enough to call a, uh, a referendum on such a complex issue, then you know what can the media do? They can't. They can't say to people, "No, I know you've got these cherished values, either I don't know patriotism or you're a, a real Europhile." Um, you know, those are things that are deep in people's psychology. I write a lot about emotions in journalism and, you know, it's all about that. It's about your values and your identity. In a way, it's a bit unreasonable to expect everyone to be like a scientist, super rational, uh, looking at the evidence, making a, you know, careful choice. If we all acted like that, I don't think anything would ever change, to be honest. So I'm, 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 I'm a Remainer, you know, I voted to, to stay in the European Union, but um, I think the Brexit result is not that people are stupid or that, you know, the media uh, didn't work hard enough to get a debate going. I think that the message of Brexit was that there was deeply entrenched values and feelings that people had. And you're probably right. You know, they didn't probably didn't change much. They were more reinforced, I think, during that campaign. Well, I had Linton Crosby on a while ago, and he was angry at the the so-called political communicators because he said they were all basically on Twitter agreeing with themselves that all the Westminster commentary out was, you know, the, the leavers were just basically political opportunists and they got away with it because the Remain communicators didn't do their job. He said if you were a used car salesman, you didn't sell any used cars, you'd get sacked. And yet we nearly lost Scotland. We lost the, the referendum. And he said... These people are of a certain type of people. They're very liberal. They're very highly educated, but they don't go and work in men's clubs in the regions. They don't read regional newspapers, and they ought to do if they're trying to persuade those readers, those listeners, those viewers in those demographics to come round to their master's way of thinking. Linton is a master of coming up with often, you know, nasty but effective political campaign strategies. You know, he's not certainly not somebody who believes in rational debate. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's a master of frightening people uh, into voting for things. But I think he, I think he's right, you know, that I think one of the mysteries, if you like, of the whole, not just the Brexit campaign, but that whole debate around Europe was 
most businesses in the UK benefit from the single market, moving to labor and all those things, you know, just in an economic sense, they benefit. They really do. And we've seen since the referendum that it's not been good for the economy. I don't think even Brexit people claim that it's had an economic benefit. And yet people, you know, voted for it. And I, I find it amazing that business completely failed to act in its own interest. Business of all types, small businesses, big businesses, all of them, they sort of stood by while this thing happened. Uh, and now they're, you know, facing all this new red tape and new costs and supply chain problems. So I think that's an interesting one. You know, I always used to think the big business was terribly influential and would always get its way, um, but not in the, the the EU referendum, it didn't, you know. Uh, and generally, yes, perhaps, um, you know, media and to a degree politics has become so centred in Westminster or London, certainly. I think people were kind of out of touch. And you make a good point, Paul, about uh, local news, that in the past, local media acted as a kind of grassroots uh, for mainstream media, both as a supply of journalists, but also a supply of reporting. You know, and I think there's been a massive, or there has been in the last five, 10 years, been, been significant reduction in that information coming up um, from you know, the whole of the UK as opposed to, to just London. I think you're right. Well, my friend Tim's editor of the Jeremy Vine Show, and he says that one of the things that they do every day to, to get stories to discuss on the show is read the regional media. He said, because the national newspapers all have their take, but largely all have their take on the same stories. If you want real stories, read local and regional news. And he's always flabbergasted that other journalists don't do that either. It's like a rich seam, a rich repository of interesting stuff that's going on that people just don't even look at. That's right. And it's, you know, as I say, it's partly because... the the structure of the industry has changed and a lot of the local news is now less newsy frankly and it's quite interesting i talked to sort of local newspaper groups and they're quite keen on the way that ai might help ameliorate that because they've got a lot of titles where frankly there used to be 10 20 reporters and there's now one or two and they're recycling copy across all their titles across regions so the news isn't really local anymore or much of it isn't local anymore. And they're thinking, well, can we use AI to, um, you know, scan for stories, to create content automatically? Often, some, you know, it could be just things like local sports results, you know, stuff like that that people want to know. Or it could be, you know, property listing, planning permission applications. All these things could be automated and create real local news quite efficiently. Now, you know, there are already systems out there to do this kind of thing. And so it could mean that the AI actually helps rebuild um, some of the the local news media that, that, that's been hollowed out. I wouldn't get too optimistic about it. I don't think it's going to be some sort of, you know, paradise suddenly. But that's what local news organizations are telling me, that they think it could be a way of actually uh, refreshing some of those people-starved newsrooms. One of the things that fascinates me about journalism and the recent challenges it's faced, I mean, obviously you're a professor of journalism, I, I present a media podcast, is, is Donald Trump and the phenomenon of just how journalists didn't know how to deal with him when he got elected. No one thought that a, a leader of such a, you know, a, a large democracy would just so willfully and routinely and so frequently lie. And you saw the emerging way that they dealt with it in, in his early presidencies where some of the journalists would say, oh, he, he said this without evidence and so on. And then eventually they used to, they, they got to the president lied this morning and said x y and z it was it was almost like journalism itself wasn't set up to deal with someone who would just be that pathological especially american journalism i think i think american journalism is especially the sort of you know respectable um, mainstream newspapers like the post and the new york times and the globe and people like that and even the the, the networks their newsrooms they're not really set up to deal with somebody who deliberately attacks the media, deliberately lies and deliberately obfuscates, you know, Trump would say one minute, yeah, I'm going to kill everyone. And then it rain back. Oh, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. And you're trying to fit me up, you know, and he, he was brilliant at doing that. He was brilliant at basically creating a situation where there was no accountability. Even if you caught him out lying, he'd just say, um, no, you know, 
and that's a really serious threat to American democracy. I think their media has got much better at it and dealing with it. I think in this country we have a slightly different problem, which is we also had a prime minister who was a pathological liar and also somebody just completely avoided uh, accountability with a deliberate style of you know, not answering questions, even when he was answering a question and acting as we've seen with, you know, to personally enrich himself, to distort policies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the trouble in the UK was that everyone called him Boris, you know, seen as some sort of lovable trait until it was too late, until we realised that he was screwing things up and, and being so unethical and immoral. In some ways, the British media was better because the British media is much happier calling someone a liar. And we've got a kind of robust, different political perspectives, you know. But on the other hand, we have a media who were literally paying him. You know, the Telegraph were paying him, the Mail is paying him now. And they found it very difficult to hold him to account. So obviously, it's not just a media story, Johnson and Trump. It's about political parties. It's about an ageing Conservative Party whose members fell in love with uh, Johnson and then, of all people, Liz Truss. And they were wildly inaccurate, even of Conservative voters. Uh, so there's a real structural problem there in the Tory party here. And there's obviously a huge structural problem in the Republican Party that it's been effectively captured by a particular group of ideologues and isn't playing the game in, in the way it used to. And that's not the media's fault. You know, that's, that's called politics. I'm actually even more depressed than you because I don't I don't blame the media or the Conservative Party. I blame us, the electorate. We knew yeah, right. what Boris was when we elected him. And like I have friends that like you know I used to be very active in politics. And you know if Tony Blair was discovered to have a mistress and an illegitimate child, that would be a resigning matter. I have friends that would, you know, as and when further undiscovered children of Boris came out, they would see that as more evidence that he's you know quote unquote a legend. He's one of us. We can have a pint with the guy. Of course, when there's a pandemic and we need him to yeah we need him to sort of come up with a vaccine and roll it out properly then and people are dying because of his incompetence we, we we're back to blaming the leaders indeed and um the politicians who claim to be you know down with the people like lee anderson i don't think he is at all but it, his trick is that he's able to pick on those kind of emotional resonance and as you say with, with johnson he he was forgiven things that other people wouldn't be because he'd managed to give this impression of being this, you know, charismatic person who was at least entertaining. And it's the same with Trump. Both Trump and Johnson, I've never heard so many people say, dreadful person, awful policies, ghastly man. But I know all that. I'm still going to vote for him because he's going to stand up for me or I think he, we need to give the people in power a good kicking, you know. And, th and that's quite a clever political trick we've seen with Trump and Johnson who are both reasonably effective although they both you know have lost as much as they won in life and it is it's something that the media find difficult to call out because you know as you said people are human <laughs> they respond emotionally to people in their own lives you know if we were if we weren't friends with everyone who's ever done anything immoral then we'd all be very lonely you know, so I think, you know, the, the genius politician is the one that for a while at least can say, forgive me my faults, but I'm still on your side. The, the Polis Project is supported by Google's Digital News Initiative. I'm fascinated by that. What kind of partner is Google? I mean, they're often painted as eating journalists' lunch, aren't they, by the dominance of the ad market to get in the revenue for the pages. You've got the new digital markets unit, and that's designed to make sure that the likes of the social media giants, Google Meta, pay a fair price for news. Uh, and the Australians very famously, very recently, are forcing uh, Facebook to pay for local journalism. Is this an uneasy alliance? I, I, I've had the boss of, of Google's Digital News Initiative on. I, I found him to be very good and I, I believe his intentions, but it's it seems to me like we're pulling on one string, one thread of the tapestry and potentially the whole thing might unravel. Yeah, I mean, of course it's an uneasy relationship. I mean, journalism itself, people, a lot of people have uneasy relationships with journalism. Think of politicians. You know, politicians need journalists, but they see journalists as unreliable, ignorant and vindictive, uh, you know, and biased. So it's kind of an uneasy relationship. Even the public has an uneasy relationship with, with journalists. And the public has an uneasy relationship with the tech companies. You know, 15 years ago, if you'd asked people, do you like Facebook? They'd say, yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's fantastic. Love it. 
And now if you ask them, they say, oh, I don't trust them. They probably still use it, but they don't trust them. And there's a similar thing with, with journalism. People say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't trust journalists. But everyone likes to get the news, you know, and they like the journalism that they can consume. And I think with tech companies and journalism, it's, you know, another uneasy relationship like that, that, you know, Google fund my project and no one else would. They've funded it and they've been very sort of hands off. They, you know, they like what we do because obviously we're encouraging people to ultimately we're helping people to use technology and they're a technology company. So it's kind of in their interest to do that. You know, it's also in their Google's interest to have a good journalism system out there because uh, a lot of their business is predicated on things like search where you ideally want to give people good information. Um, for example, journalism, you know, or at least good journalism. Uh, so there's a kind of coincidence, you know, they'd, they'd rather see news organizations thrive. And as you say, things like the GNI have been very helpful. On the other hand, is there a wider responsibility from the tech companies uh, to, for example, to pay for the data they use in these new large language models? Should they be, you know, paying for content on their sites or can they do more uh, to help journalists or journalism organizations to connect to, to the public? You know, I, I'm not very comfortable with just expecting the tech companies to write a check just because journalists haven't got much money. You know, I think that's a bit of a kind of opt out. Uh, I don't think you want to be dependent upon technology companies. But certainly, you know, we can ask what, what can the tech companies do more generally for society, you know. Um, but in the end, I think uh, it's in the interests of journalists and the tech companies to talk to each other, especially now with AI becoming so controversial. I think it's really important that, you know, those conversations happen and that there is both very critical reporting of the technology, um, you know, that points out when things go wrong, it points out who controls things. It points out when there's a bias or a discrimination in it. But I think it's also important that, you know, journalists know enough about the tech to, to see the benefits, both to, to themselves and the news industry and, of course, to wider society. You know, journalism has to be about a constructive approach as well as a critical one. What's your view on how globalization and the geopolitical, the global political situation is going to impact on journalism? So, for example, denial of the Holocaust is obviously morally and factually wrong, of course, that's not in dispute. But of course, in, in America, they would say it's your First Amendment right to say that the Holocaust didn't happen. And yet in Germany and France, it might be rightly denial of the Holocaust is, is a criminal offense. You know, you've got. Um, you've got platforms like TikTok, for example, that don't care about super injunctions. You know, the rumors about Philip Schofield were there months before on TikTok, uh, naming in breach of the law the, the, the young colleague of Philip Schofield. Is it becoming almost irrelevant now that we're going to that sort of seep to some kind of lowest common denominator where you, anyone will just go to any platform that will have their content. You know, Tommy Robinson is rightly banned from spreading his vile hate on British platforms, but he can go straight on TikTok and do it. Yeah, and I think, you know, we have to accept the way of the world. I think that we have to get used to, as individuals, as well as journalists or professors or whatever, uh, we have to get used to being in an information environment that is not controlled in the way it was before. If you want to control it, you're going to have to restrict people's freedom to use it massively. So you have to go, even to Chinese model isn't enough, but you'd have to go further than the Chinese in terms of using this for surveillance and control and punishing people who say the wrong things online. You know, so it's possible to <laughs> do more to, to, to restrict speech if you're trying to get rid of the bad things. Unfortunately, people disagree about what is bad, I think quite rightly. Personally, I'd rather endure some of the bad stuff online than go around closing down the good stuff. We know that people search out these things one of the dangers is if you start, we've seen this, that if you start to close things down, like if you shut down websites or if you close off, you know, uh, communication channels like WhatsApp or whatever, then what happens? People actually go underground, you know, and the danger is that you lose track of them. And so they can still be doing terrible things and saying horrible things, but they're doing it uh, out of sight. I mean, that is definitely one of the issues about, messaging apps like WhatsApp, you know, that a lot of this malicious stuff is now going onto those channels. 
there's still laws in every country there are still laws you know you pointed out some around the holocaust for example uh, and that's always going to be the case you know so it's possible you know we, we've seen recently where police uh, you know having to do much, so much more investigation digitally we don't want the police crawling all over our digital media necessarily but if people are doing you know criminal things then eventually they can be uh, prosecuted well there's also the cachet of it being surreptitious of it being banned i mean i i had john whittingdale on it last year and we were laughing because the bbc banned relax by frankie goes to hollywood and that was the thing that shot it to number one i bought it when i was about six <laughs> because it was banned if if, I'd, if they hadn't have banned it i probably wouldn't have bought it because it wasn't that good no exactly that's what i'm saying about you know it's very easy to find something bad online, all right? You can find something really bad online. You say, look at this really bad thing. How on earth did that get online? Well, usually somebody put it there, oftentimes just to provoke exactly that kind of response. And someone like Andrew Tate survives and thrives because he's so notorious, because people like me hate him. And so younger people think, well, anybody that an old fart like Charlie hates must be cool, you know? Um, so the, you know, there's a real danger of overreacting and actually amplifying the bad things. And instead of thinking, well, okay, there's that bad thing online, but is it actually having any effect? You know, has, have, has the world, and this is a genuine question, you know, I think you can argue it both ways, you know, have people become nastier or not? Are there more crimes? Are people more stressed out? Is there more men mental illness than before? You know, these are big questions. But I would be sceptical about saying that all that bad stuff on the internet has suddenly poisoned humanity. You know, I still see uh, loads and loads of evidence of people being very, very nice to each other and leading quite ordinary, normal lives. You know, they haven't all become conspiracy theorists or perverts just because there's a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories and perversions online. I agree with you. It fascinates me, and I've posed this question before on the podcast multiple times, which is that has social media just brought out the worst in us, that we always used to gossip over the picket fences, as it were, between neighbours, and now it's just made it easier? Or has it actually brought something out in us and, and encouraged it and amplified it? Now, I remember my niece about eight or nine years ago, we were on holiday, and she said, well, you don't think that we landed on the moon, did you? And I was like, uh, yeah, of course we did. And I don't think it. It's a matter of fact. And what happened was one of her friends, I mean, she was like nine or 10 years old at the time, had set, shared a, um, a YouTube fake documentary. This is how Stanley Kubrick faked it. And of course, once she'd watched that, it said other people that watched this fake nonsense also watched these other fake things. And within three hours, she was convinced that the whole thing was fake. And I had to say, look, there's, there's mirrors on the moon. How did they get there? They're called retroreflectors. Look, you can buy a laser for 400 quid and beam it off the moon yourself. Yeah. Well, I think you just given a good example of how it works, which is, yes, it's easier for people to fall into, especially because that, that, the conspiracy is always sexier in some ways than the real thing, although the, the landing on the moon was quite a sexy real story as well, wasn't it? But um, you, know, you just show the evidence of how that then gets countered. At some point, if you believe in something barking mad, if it's of any consequence, then at some point you're going to bump up against somebody or the truth. Somebody will say, uh, that's mad, you know. Uh, and if you think about it, we've all held weird views. I mean, I'm personally not religious. I tend to see religious faith as, you know, perfectly nice, but mad. You know, I think it's kind of delusional. Who would believe all that stuff? But to other people, it's a lovely thing and it's lovely in their life and they perhaps genuinely believe it as well. So, again, you know, I don't worry too much. But I'd worry about, you know, the, the nasty end of it, you know, where you get the conspiracy theories that all of them end up being anti-Semitic. They all end up blaming the Jews, you know. So I think that's the kind of danger with the with conspiracy theories. Um, you know, I think it's all right. I mean, I'm a West Ham fan. I, I still think we're going to win the league one year. And how deluded am I, you know? I, I believe in well, something that it's just not true, never going to happen. But, you know, it's, but it's harmless. The fact that I have that belief is harmless. Uh, I fully accept that there are people who believe stuff that it makes them then unhappy, angry, and sometimes violent. We've seen, you know, an increase in quite appalling attacks, if you like, terrorist attacks by people who have basically lost touch with reality and are motivated by very strange convictions. And, you know, they've probably got them from the internet, you know. 
and we do know that that, that is a real problem. Well, you are right. This increase in tribalism is very disturbing. But but also, I mean, I used to work with Richard Dawkins many years ago, and he used to say you can't reason someone out of a position that they didn't reason themselves into. And whether it be a religious faith or Brexit or love of Trump, it's not about trying to reason with them. I, I said this, to, I stood for Parliament in 2005 and I asked Peter Mandelson once, I said, if you try to say to people why immigration is actually a good thing on every objective standard, you know, they come here, they pay their taxes, they contribute to the community, their people, our whole lives are enriched by having people, you know, uh, migrants of all sorts, you know, and it's, it's fundamentally the decent thing to do. Not only do they not listen to you, they then mark you as, oh, you're one of them, are you? It's like the, this badge of this othering. And I said to Peter, how do you even deal with that? And he said, you can't endorse it. You can't agree with it, but you can't disagree with it. You just need to let them feel heard. So just smile politely and then walk away. And I thought, well, that's, haven't we ignored our duty to try and change that person's mind? And he said, you can't. You know, you can change younger people in some ways, although they're often very uh, influenced mainly by their parents, not by the media or their friends. But I think I'd say, Paul, I'd, I'd be even more worried about a phenomenon I see where people... You say to them, uh, here's some evidence that immigration improves the economy. And they go, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, and they perhaps know it. They've got perhaps know a farmer who needs somebody to pick fruit, you know, or they've got a Polish plumber or something. Uh, and then you say to them that it's brought us all sorts of wonderful things, different food, different cultural perspectives, connections with a different country. Yeah, they say, yeah, I know somebody who's who's a really nice bloke and he's cooks for me, he's amazing food, wonderful. And then you say, would say, would you be happy to relax immigration? No, 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 no. So I think there's a kind of weird dislocation that goes on, a sort of cognitive dissonance, if you like. Often it's how you ask the question. If you say, do you want to stop the illegal small boats? People say, yeah, sure, right. If you say, do you want to help people fleeing from a appalling war to find safety? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's partly about the questions and the way we frame things. And I think media, obviously, and the issue you described, Paul, is always the classic example that we give of where in the UK, for example, our, our newspapers anyway have generally speaking been violently anti-immigration, you know, despite many of the obvious benefits. And it's an, an emotional thing and it's about fear and, as you say, othering other people. And, you know, that touches a raw nerve, especially, of course, amongst people who don't face immigration. The people who are most against immigration are the ones that don't live in more mixed uh, communities, which I always think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a friend who would say this country is full. What can I say other than, no, it isn't? Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's, 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 there's lots of space. Uh, even in London, there is still space, you know. But it, it's, a, it's an emotional feeling, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's an emotional um, sense of not wanting things to change and wanting the familiar. And I, I can understand that. We all... In, in a sense, feel we, we we want the world to be as we know it, you know, and it can be very disruptive. You know, you look at countries like Germany where, you know, they took in a million or two million Syrians, you know, that was a lot of people. And now there have been a lot of bumps along that road, you know, lots of stories about, you know, Syrian gangs and stuff like this. And now, finally, the, the proof is there, apparently, that... They are now a, a massive net benefit to the German economy. They've, you know, provided loads of young, intelligent people to revive uh, businesses there. Um, but yeah, and yet you look at Gerhard Schröder and Angela Merkel that, that let the entire German economy depend on Russian oil and energy. Was it eighty percent? No one, even, no one flagged that at the time that they were putting all yeah. their eggs in the basket of just one lunatic. Things change. Journalism again, I think. Uh, you know, we, we have high expectations of journalism, you know, to do things like, you know, predict what's going to happen in 10 years or to point out where something's going wrong. And again, you know, journalism isn't always good at that because it's very much trapped in the here and now. And a lot of the political journalists are just a bit too close, frankly, to the politics. You know, I don't mean that they're subservient at all, but it's very difficult to get out of that kind of group think. The same thing probably happens even at fine universities like the LSE. You know, people will share uh, values and so on, and it's difficult to 
think outside the box, you know. And that's one of the reasons I like being at university is that it, it's more likely to happen. It's great. Where's the responsibility to fix this? It can't be on the burden of journalists and journalism. I mean, I remember even at school, we, we, my geography teacher said, you pick a lens. You know, if you buy The Guardian or you buy The Telegraph, you've chosen the lens through which you want to view the world already. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I always say, what's wrong with that in a sense? You know, that you might say I'm living in a filter bubble or an echo chamber or something, but that's my life. You know, that's how I grew up and that's the things I value and that's my identity and that's my, you know, those are the relationships I have with certain people um, and I don't necessarily want to change too much. Um, for example, as I said, I'm a West Ham fan. Um, I don't want to be a Tottenham fan. Perhaps it would be better. <laughs> it would be better if I was a Manchester City fan. But I don't want to change. It's part of my identity now, so I'm going to stick with it, thank you. You know, and that's a bit irrational. I'd be much happier if I was a Man City fan, I think. But, um, you know, it's the same with political beliefs and so on. Uh, there, there, there's, you know, it, there are ways of not just changing people's minds, but it's more bringing people with you, I think. I think politicians, clever politicians, are good at that. They don't say you've got to abandon your beliefs. I mean, Blair was very good at this. He was saying, look, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I recognise your anger, but don't you think this would be quite a good thing to do anyway? You know, and people big felt... Tent, third way. Big tent, third way, all that stuff. But also kind of, he would frame it as, I'm not doing this because I hate you. I'm doing this because I think it's the right thing to do and I think it's sensible. You know, I'm not doing because I want to steal all your money for taxes or I want to, you know, get rid of your trade union or something. You know, and that was, I'm not saying he was perfect, good God, or that it was infallible. But I'll just say, I think that kind of approach, like online, you know, if you go around having a dig at everyone on Twitter, then great, the people who agree with you are going to love it. But you're not going to convince anybody else to change their mind or even listen to your point of view if you're just going around being angry and snide and uh, and you know smart aleck about stuff and we all do it you know i'm sure i've said horrible things at times but it's much more interesting to try and find ways to connect if that's what you want to do tell us i know we don't have much time left but why did you start out on this journey did you always want to become a journalist could you give sort of our listeners a three minute pressy of your career yeah well actually the, the, the brutal truth was i you know did the usual soppy humanities English literature degree and I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. Um, I had actually been editor of the student union newspaper. It didn't reoccur really to me that that was a professional career that I could have. I'd, there'd never been any journalist in my family. Um, and then it was just literally a call out of the blue from somebody on a free paper in South London said, hey, my boss is looking for reporters. Do you fancy it? And I thought, hmm, that could be as good as anything. And I just fell in love with the whole thing, you know. And I think back then I thought I could change the world by doing journalism. And in some ways I haven't lost that. I don't mean that I want to turn the world into my kind of place, but I love doing what I do at the moment because it continues my journalism career of just helping people to live a better life, to be a bit better informed about things so they can take actions themselves. I like to think that's what I was trying to do as a journalist at places like the BBC, you know, with some success, I guess. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm working with journalists to help them do that thing that I love, which is journalism. And it's so diverse. That's the, the pleasure of my life at the moment is I, I work around the world. You know, I travel, which is nice, but just meeting people either remotely or in physically, completely different societies, completely different newsrooms, um, doing completely different types of journalism, but all with that kind of common idea that it's good to be curious and it's good to communicate and that journalism for all its faults it's terribly paid you're often under resourced without the time um you're often facing the sack you never know when your next paycheck's coming and there won't be much in the paycheck and of course everyone hates you as well but apart from that it can be absolutely fascinating and it's sometimes quite exciting and, and I just had a fantastic, whatever it is, 40 odd years doing things around journalism. And I'm still very inspired by the journalists that I meet around the world. I think considering all the threats, physical threats, economic threats, technological threats, it's just amazing how 
journalists, journalists uh, struggle on and how resilient uh, news organisations have been. One of my guests years ago said journalism's the worst job in the world unless you just happen to think that it's the best job in the world. I think you're doing a fantastic job, Charlie. How do people, how do people follow your work? We're completely open. Everything we do is online and available. All our training courses, our innovation reports, our network. We have a newsletter. Obviously, we're on the social as well, but we are so easy to get to. I've got a team based around the world who just want to hear from journalists who are interested in AI, either to report upon it or to work with it. So we're incredibly, that's, our, that's what we're in the business of. We're in the business of listening to journalists, talking to journalists and working with journalists about AI. What an absolutely fascinating conversation, Charlie, and what an absolutely fascinating job you're doing. Thank you ever so much for your time. No problem. Thanks a lot. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.